I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. And let's talk about the magnitude of this. We have 514 open disasters across half this globe, from the Mariana Islands all the way to the Virgin Islands. We've seen six major landfall and hurricanes, five of the most historic wildfires in the last 15 months. That's on top of 75 declared total disasters last year, 68 this year, and we've also provided support to 113 wildfires. The average deployment of my staff is 136 days as they go out to take care of people and try to put people's lives back together. And I think that that should be recognized. I really do. This agency is doing everything that it can to push forward to help people before, during, and after disasters, but it goes back to what is a partnership in the whole community. That was FEMA Administrator Brock Long during his November 2018 congressional testimony before the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. After a 2017 hurricane season that can only be described as historic in nature, 2018 closed as anything but less challenging for the Federal Emergency Management Agency. On this episode, we caught up with FEMA Administrator Brock Long, who last week announced that he will be departing the agency. This episode was recorded at the very end of 2018, but we thought it was important to hear him discuss the monumental task of supporting recovery efforts from 2017 while responding to another historic disaster season in 2018. We also discussed the impact of the agency's strategic plan, lessons learned from recent events, and recent groundbreaking legislation that will significantly impact the way the agency serves the American public going forward. Administrator Long, thanks so much. Uh, last time you were uh, on the FEMA podcast was the very first episode of the FEMA podcast, and we talked about the strategic plan. Um, it had just been rolled out, and the plan is, it's short, it's very concise, but um, it's very ambitious in content. We talked a lot about that. The, the, there are three main goals. How do you describe the agency's progress in achieving um, your outline priorities over the past year, and w- what are you thinking so far? So, Mark, um, the strategic plan, the whole concept of the strategic plan was to be a unifying document, not just for FEMA, but the entire profession of emergency management. Um, I don't believe that we've ever had a strategic plan that ties us all together, gets us all moving in the right direction to truly um, save lives and create a nation that's more prepared and resilient. So uh, in regards to the three goals, you know, uh, progress is being made, in my opinion. Um, For example, uh, one of the things that I wanted to put out under goal two for readying the nation of catastrophic disasters was the FEMA integration teams. You know, we had a goal of putting 12 teams in place and, and embedding our our staff permanently with our state agencies and partners, but we're at, we're up to 15 teams out in the field, and we just created the first tribal government fit team, regional fit team out in Region 10, to start supporting um, you know our partners in uh, in tribal governments out there in the Pacific uh, you know Northwest. Are you seeing any tangible uh, benefits of having those teams in the states? Have have the state directors been? you know, telling you about some of the things that they've been doing? Ironically, uh, the first team was uh, went into North Carolina. Mike Sprayberry was the president of NEMA, and he was the first one to bite it off, and I'm very, very thankful for Mike's uh, leadership in, in, in doing that. Um, we put a team out there, and again, these teams are designed uh, to help the state overcome the gaps that they've identified through their state preparedness reports or issues that they're having in recovery, along with helping us to accomplish other na- nationwide goals such as disaster cost recovery, disaster closing, 
out and other things. We put this team into North Carolina first, and then Florence occurred. So um, what was great about it was that we were getting real-time data, verifying real-time data about the evacuation life safety movements and the threats, uh, as well as how to pre-position to meet the state's uh, perceived response gaps, and then immediately transitioning that team to starting the preliminary damage assessment process and and uh, pushing through on recovering, setting them up uh, ready to go for a large recovery, billion-dollar event. So are you thinking that the FIT teams really sort of um – complete the disaster cycle. We have our IMAT teams, our incident management assistance teams that go there right before an event or right after an event. We have our recovery staff that go there to fulfill the disaster, but then these are these people are always there working with the state, right? Right. I want them always, uh, you know, the, the problem is we have to fix our business enterprise and, and our customer service. So, you know, traditionally, FEMA has only really been seen out in the field by local emergency managers during the recovery phase when everything's torn up, tensions are high, people are ticked off, and it doesn't um, lend to building strong relationships. Uh, what I want is our guys planning, training, exercising, and executing together on, an, on a daily basis and, you know, help us truly understand the gaps, the unique gaps that are, that are prevalent in each state, formulate plans and processes to overcome those gaps so that we become more resilient. And that's what this is all about. We're going to continue to push it out. Uh, and then eventually, um, imagine if FEMA went to more of an academy process of hiring, like the FBI academy uh, process of hiring. And the first jumping on point for a FEMA employee in the future would be a FIT team where they actually learn how states, you know, receive federal government resources down from FEMA, but not just FEMA, 20 different agencies across the United States federal government provides recovery program funding potentially. How is this funding received by the state and put down at the local level to ultimately help incident command at the local level achieve their goals? And, um... It would be amazing for our staff to get that real-world event experience at the FIT team and then work their way up to a region and then ultimately work their way up to headquarters to run national programs. So you mentioned that the the first FIT teams in North Carolina. Uh, We're wrapping up 2018, and we, throughout this year, have looked back to the hurricane season, the the enormous uh, impacts of the 2017 hurricane season. Um, But... 2018 has uh, been no short of a very active disaster year. Uh, We've had Hurricane Florence, uh, the Pacific disasters. We've had numerous um, major storms throughout the Pacific and then the California wildfires. Mark, the numbers are staggering. Um, There are statistics that suggest that based on last year and this year, uh, the 2017 and 2018 calendar year for disasters, that FEMA will provide as much public assistance out to our state and local tribal partners as the agency has done in its previous 38 years combined. Its entire history has basically been packed into a 16-month time frame. It is forcing our profession to rethink how we do business. I do not believe that a bigger FEMA is the answer. I think that we have to continue to fine-tune how we bolster state and local capabilities, but also state legislators need to step up, fund their agencies correctly, create you know, robust rainy day funds, you know, help, help design legislative law to where states can put pre, pre-event contracts in place, um, and recognize that we've got to increase the baseline level disaster that a state and local government can handle without FEMA having to deploy human capital assets. Um, 
you know, the problem that we've identified is, is that 40, you know, $41 million is the target. 80% of the disasters at FEMA works are less than $41 million. For those smaller disasters underneath that threshold, FEMA has got to become more of a block granting agency and sending money to fix a community rather than managing that type of disaster on a state and local government's behalf. And so we've been having robust conversations with state directors on board of saying, we really need to go to more state managed disasters for those smaller events and reserve FEMA uh, and our human capital assets and, and, and resources for the large events when the nation really needs us, like Harvey Irma Maria, five of the worst wildfires ever seen, Florence, Michael, you two. Uh, because right now, FEMA is really, you know, really being stressed. We have over 82% of our deployable assets out in the field. The average deployment right now is 136 days for our staff. We do not have the ability to put staff out <clears throat> for the smaller events to maintain, you know, so that we can be ready to go to help for the bigger ones that occur. Uh, the biggest thing that keeps me up at night is goal two, readying the nation for catastrophic disasters, the low to no notice earthquake, which we just had a scare in Alaska, you know, uh, over a 7.0 uh, earthquake in Alaska. And, you know, what we have to do is recognize that FEMA is not a first responder. We, d we do not mobilize uh, like a 911 type agency, and it takes time for us to get things into motion to be able to help your community. So we have to stress that states and local governments are ready to go for those smaller load and, or you know smaller disasters, but also the low to no notice of give me 48 to 72 hours to get the system stabilized so that you know I have time to mobilize resources in. You know, uh, on that point, uh, in your congressional testimony recently, you you painted this picture about how we've seen disasters almost around the globe, uh, from uh, far out into the Pacific Island, the West Coast, the East Coast, all the way to Alaska. What do those local communities need to do? How do they need to change to meet that 48-hour, 72-hour, even week um, right. So, span? So we realize that money's tight. We realize that EMPG is the lifeblood of, you know, uh, the, you know, funding a lot of positions out at the local as well as the state level. But there are low to no cost, you know, retainer type contracts they can put in place to do staff augmentation or disaster cost recovery. You know, put a contract in place to bring in a consulting firm to help you, you know, manage large dollars and the recovery to augment the staff that you don't have. Um, the other thing is, is that you would set those contacts, anything up where you don't have technical expertise within your staffing or your workforce, then consider pre-event contract. Consider pre-event contracts for debris. Consider pre-event contracts for emergency power and generators. Set up vendor-managed logistics um, you know, contracts with local water bottling you know, companies in your communities, if possible, to, to be able to handle the first 48 to 72 hours of commodity movement. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things that we're asking uh, local governments to do. The other thing is, is that we're having to change our audience. Um, I love emergency managers and I love going to conferences and speaking to emergency managers, but we're also making a deliberate move to change our audience. What I'm trying to do now is focus on realtors uh, in the community, the financial advisors, the insurers in the communities. There are realtors, financial advisors, and insurers in every community. How do we make them part of our army uh, when it comes to building, you know, a true culture of preparedness, which is goal number one? You know, we've got to get realtors in this country to stop advertising that this house doesn't require flood insurance as a good thing. Um, any house can flood. If you live in an area where it rains, it can flood. And FEMA is only, you know, by law told to map the special flood hazard area, the most probable, you know, flooding that can occur 
occur. Not the 500 year, not the thousand year, not all aspects of what where flooding can occur. So how do we change the mindset of realtors to become our army to educate people that a mitigated house is a valuable house? Having insurance is, is a must to protect your you know, to protect your, your greatest asset, most expensive asset. So we're really trying to rethink the way that we engage the communities, set local governments up for success, as well as the states for success, to make this truly a partnership and not a, um, you know, FEMA being a, you know, FEMA being largely responsible for the response and recovery aspects. So you mentioned uh, reaching out to different audiences. I have to assume one of those audiences is now an active participant, has made major changes. Congress, members of Congress have really made a major step in disaster uh, recovery reform this year with the passage of the Disaster Recovery Reform Act of 2018. Um, What does this piece of legislation mean to you? Uh, It's transformational to the entire field. Uh, and uh, Congress was very proactive. Uh, you know, I testified 12 times last year, I think. I mean, basically once You've a really month driven this pushing. legislation. Yeah, um, and it was, it was very, uh, very meaningful to me for Congress to push it forward because what it did is that it, um, it, it, put, it thrust pre-disaster mitigation into the forefront of what we do. And, you know, up until this bill passed, m- mitigation was largely a recovery program because you had to get hit to have access to post-disaster mitigation dollars, which is a regressive approach. Well, now what the bill says is that 6% of all the recovery dollars that FEMA spends in any given year will now be placed up front in pre-disaster mitigation funding. If that bill had gone into place last year, that would have been 2 to $2.5 billion ready to go this next year for uh, pre-disaster mitigation. So with that type of funding coming forward, emergency managers across this country better be figuring out how um, they go to their their county count, their county commissions, uh, you know, state legislators need to be ready to fund the match requirements on that type of funding and look at how we strategize in making our infrastructure more resilient across across every community. The legislation also identifies the need to help different populations, uh, people with disabilities. This this law, it really advances the type of recovery that we can provide for them. Right. So, so the law was transformational for our Office of Disability Integration Coordination and the Functional and Access Needs and Disability Community. Um, previously, uh, a person with functional and access needs was penalized uh, against their max grant if we had to go in and, and do construction work to make their house more accessible after a disaster. Like if we had to build a ramp to the home, then the cost of that ramp would have been deducted from their max grant of $34,000. Well, what the law did is it changed that to say that is no longer, uh, we're no longer going to penalize people for that uh, so that that is a cost that's directly upon the federal government and then the max grant will remain at $34,000 for someone with functional access needs. So uh, the, the law was transformational there. Uh, the law was also transformational for our FEMA workforce. Uh, our disaster staff workforce to be able to allow them to work their way up through the uh, the organization. But the other thing that it did is that it bolstered state and local capability through increased management cost provisions. So technically, uh, it throws out what was known as DAC uh, and, and uh, the 3.34% management cost provision, and it bumps up a state's ability to manage disasters at 7% and a local government's ability at 5%, which is a tremendous amount of money to pay for staff augmentation, hire force account labor, you know, manage the smaller disasters under $41 million. So there is a method and rhyme and reason as to how why this bill was put into to place in the way that it was put in and the way it was designed to do that. 
what are you looking forward to in 2019? What are some of the things that are on the top of your mind? Well, we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, we've got to continue to focus on large-scale disaster cost recovery. I do not believe that recovery plans are remotely indicative of what actually takes place out in the field after a large billion-dollar event. Um, I, I also believe that it's time for the Emergency Manager 2.0. Um, you know, lights and sirens will always be part of our DNA, but it's time to graduate from that a little bit and realize that you, as the local or state emergency manager, may be the person that goes before a governor or a county commission and says, here's what you're entitled to. The funding comes from a whole host of federal government agencies. You know, let's design your realistic and ambitious goals and then grab the funding you're entitled to, put it to work, understand how the money hits at different time frames, the cash flow management of this, but we do so ultimately in a manner to achieve greater resilience in your community. Outcome-driven recovery has got to be the focus going forward, and we've got to retrain emergency managers um, that disaster financial recovery is one of the most important aspects of their job. And, you know, far too long we've had an, a, a, a sole focus on incident command. A large majority of emergency managers um, – that exist in this country don't really do it incident command, but what they do is they administer large amounts of, of funding through grants. And we've got, to, we've got to focus on that and realize that that's a large part of our job, and that's, that's the focus going into the new year. The other thing that we're going to be focusing on is transitioning to what we call community lifelines. This is basically a construct for outcome-based stabilization efforts, Ma you know, making sure that we have unity of effort during the response phase, but also it could be a construct to guide future mitigation dollars as well as outcome-driven recovery. So we've identified what we call seven lifelines. There's safety, security, food, water, shelter, health and medical, energy, power and fuel, communications, transportation, hazardous waste and materials. If any one of those lifelines is down, then life safety is in jeopardy and life routine is being disrupted. So how do we, we're moving to a red, yellow, green concept and funneling our ESFs into these community lifeline stabilization, unity of effort um, mechanisms to make sure that we try to turn each one of them back to green status, fully operational. Um, if, they're, if they have gone to red where they've been blown out or yellow where they're not operating at 100%. And so what we've got to do is reorganize our event management software to collect data in this manner, um, all the way up from the local level of government to the federal level of government. And I would ask you to check it out. We have an FAQ on community lifelines and the way that we're moving and uh, trying to really put, it also puts the, the, the private sector in the front seat. The other thing that it does is it, you know, we don't own the infrastructure. We don't own the communications infrastructure. We don't own the power and fuel infrastructure. A lot of that's owned by the private sector. So how do we use these lifelines to put them in the driver's seat to tell us exactly what we need to do to help them stabilize those lifelines? We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast.